Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Before we get to Minute 43, some more thoughts about the new movie. Again, I'm going to start somewhere other than this film. Van Halen famously used to put in their concert contracts a contract writer about there being no brown M&Ms allowed backstage. Dave Lee Roth explained in his autobiography, Van Halen was the first band to take huge productions into tertiary third-level markets. We'd pull up with the nine 18-wheeler trucks full of gear, where the standard was three trucks max, and there were many, many technical errors. Whether it was the girders couldn't support the weight, or the flooring would sink in, or the doors weren't big enough to move the gear through, the contract writer read like a version of the Chinese Yellow Pages because there was so much equipment and so many human beings to make it function. So just as a little test, in the technical aspect of the writer, it would say Article 148, there will be 15 amperage voltage sockets at 20-foot spaces, evenly, providing 19 amperes, dot dot dot, this kind of thing. And the article number 126, in the middle of nowhere, was, there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon pain of forfeiture of the show with full compensation. So when I would walk backstage, if I saw a brown M&M in that bowl, well, line check the entire production. Guaranteed you're going to arrive at a technical error. They didn't read the contract. Guaranteed you'd run into a problem. Sometimes it would threaten to just destroy the whole show. Something like literally life-threatening. I saw the movie a second time and it still bugs me that they put Haddonfield in Warren County. I've seen people talking about the different nods to the other films. I don't think they cared that much. Fan service is cheap. It doesn't mean you care. Like the Warren County thing. It's a dumb mistake. Easy to avoid. Some other passing notes from the second viewing. Why does Aaron stay behind Michael in the opening sequence? You're there to meet this famous killer. Why not go, you know, face him? Walk around to the other side of him. Look at him. Look him in the eye. Instead of yelling awkwardly from behind. Lori has a gate outside her property. You know, spoilers. At the end of the movie, Michael gets through that gate without any trouble. That seems like a scene worth seeing. I have no problem with them leaving the bus crash out of the movie because that would spoil something that we find out later. But there are sequences like that that should be there that aren't. How does Michael get into the property with the police car? He doesn't know the code for the gate. It's a silly nitpick, but it's a silly mistake. Similarly, when we first see Allison and Vicky and Dave, they seem to have been friends for a long time. How is this the first time they're ever talking about Allison's grandmother? It's stupid movie logic. We have to have this conversation so we, she talks about her grandmother. So we can dismiss major plot point of earlier films. <laughs> I'm not bitter. <laughs> Michael kills at least six people before he puts on the mask. Well, he might only be five, because spoilers, someone else might have been involved in the bus crash. And yet the movie wants us to think the mask has power. Structural problem with the movie. Remove the podcasters entirely, movie's fine. Then it just starts like Halloween 4. Michael's transferred, he escapes. Cut to Lori hearing it on the news. She's cleaning a gun, so we know she's got her weird survival thing going on. We don't need the entire segment with the podcasters. It's just an excuse to add more kills before Michael even has the mask. Similarly, the babysitting segment doesn't need to be in the film. The woman looking out the window and Michael coming in behind her doesn't need to be in the film. You take those out, and the plot is the same. One of the nods to the original, the talk of fate, PJ Souls is the voice of the teacher, uh, references 
Frankel. I think they're just making up a name, kind of like Costain in the original, you know. But it made me think of Victor Frankel, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is about his experience in Auschwitz. You know, finding meaning in the everyday when life is horrible. I don't think that reference is deliberate. I think it's just a coincidence, because he doesn't talk about fate. Later in this minute, remember this right now is an insert recorded after the rest of this episode was recorded. Although this insert might end up longer than the rest of the episode. It happens. I suggest that Michael was picking his victims randomly in the original film, but that isn't the right term. He is methodical, even if not purposeful. In the first film, taken on its own, he goes after Lori because she comes to his house. Because he also follows Tommy, who comes to his house. He doesn't follow Annie or Linda until after they've interacted with Lori, after he's seen them with Lori. That's not random. Scenes that don't need to be there. <laughs> Allison wanders into the woods to get away from Michael, and he makes no effort to follow her. We get a musical track that a bunch of people love for some reason. I think it sounds like it should be under a car chase in an action film, but that's a, that's a separate issue, the music. She gets to Lori's shooting range, which we've already seen in the film. But the camera cuts back and forth from mannequin face to mannequin face as if they're supposed to be creepy to us, not just to her. And there's no point in that. Not at that point in the movie. We've already seen the mannequins. We know they're there. We know, even though she's screaming, Allison is screaming, we know that she's actually closer to being safe because she's on Lori's property. Although how she got on the property without getting through the gate or over a fence, I don't know. Maybe Lori's security isn't actually that good. It's just made to look good. Which gets me to my next note, and there are definite spoilers here. Lori is prepared to burn her entire house down, right? But when she thinks Michael is in a closet, she doesn't just fire the shotgun in. She has to open the closet, you know, so we get a little jump scare. It's favoring cheap filmmaking over actual storytelling. The Lori that supposedly is in front of us would just shoot. She'd probably say something to make sure it's not someone else in there, and then she'd shoot. Also, when she's walking around the house and toward that closet door, she's leading with the shotgun barrel, which suggests filmmakers and Lori didn't think about how you train with guns. Or maybe Lori never trained with guns. Maybe it is a character choice, but I don't think so. I think it's just lazy filmmaking. You don't leap with the barrel because then people can grab the barrel, as Michael does when she tries to point it at him at the door. Harry, I was thinking some more about this reality versus fiction. Oh, is that a fact? Yeah, like in the movies, when a guy comes up and sticks a gun at some schmuck's back and says, uh, let's take a walk, all of a sudden he's got a hostage. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Well, in reality, the pros like about five feet of separation. Five feet, huh? Yeah. Huh? That's so the schmuck doesn't take the gun back and make ah! it. Since we're into spoiler territory, it is a great twist that the basement is a trap, but Karen's delivery of it's not a cage, it's a trap, is dumb. It sounds nice. It's a nice sound bite. But she says it to Allison, who hasn't heard any of the conversation about it being a cage, who doesn't even know anything about this house, has presumably never been in it before. I guess she knows it's there, or she wouldn't be able to make it to the property, but she certainly hasn't been in that basement, and the cage conversation happened with Karen's husband, not with her daughter. Finally, what I wrote down is the film has nice nods to the previous films, but it doesn't feel like Halloween. Michael feels more like Jason, killing anybody who's around. The perfunctory babysitting bit feels like the campers in Jason Goes to Hell. Unnecessary, no matter how good some details might be. The signpost through the naked girl in Jason Goes to Hell is amazing. Everything about Julian and Vicky in this movie is amazing. Julian is hilarious. 
Vicky's delivery on the line about dry fucking is hilarious. Like, you get the impression she is into Dave. And that's great acting. There's great acting all throughout this movie. Oh, also in that sequence, I love that Michael puts the jack-o'-lantern in the aquarium. We don't see it. It's just there. That's funny. It's not even funny. It's weird. And I took it as a nod to He Knows You're Alone. All in all, I've spent way too much of this weekend already being one of the only voices being negative about the film, (laughs) which then increases my negativity. Not my actual negativity, but like how I seem. Some guy asked me, he's like, what did you like? I'm like, oh, well, and I had a list, but it was funny that people were getting the impression I didn't like anything at all about the movie. The movie's okay. The editing has problems. The structure has problems. Parts of it are great. But let's get back to the original. Minute 43. Minute 43 begins with Tommy at the window. Blinds pulled apart. The sounds of children outside. Less than a second of Tommy, and then Tommy's POV, street. Across the street stands the shape, looking into the house. This time the shape is Deborah Hill. This placement always bugged me, though, because Michael is clearly nowhere near either the bay window he was standing near in minute 42 or the French doors he would be standing by later this minute. It's like Michael wanders out into the front yard occasionally, hoping that someone will see him. To be fair, way back in minute 29, I suggested he was doing something similar outside the high school. This isn't in my notes, but CinemaSins finally covered uh, the original Halloween this week, and they make a comment on him standing outside the school in minute 17, and how, like, how did he know Lori's going to be looking out here? And two things. One, either he didn't, and he did something fun like I suggested, went around from window to window, and maybe he couldn't even see inside because of the glare, we don't know. Or, there's something supernatural going on, and of course he knew Lori was going to look up. She had to look up. She had to see him. But in the context of just this film, he's picking his targets almost randomly. Lori and Tommy come by his house in the morning, so he follows them. Lori walks home with Linda and Annie, so he follows them. Maybe he is shopping. Trick-or-treaters walk by. They are just silhouettes, so I'm not going to try to figure out their costumes. No, that doesn't sound like me. Raise some brightness, and well, we're seeing them from behind. Left Kid has white pants, purple vest, and a tall, weird hat. Almost looks like an upside-down boot. It might be one of those drum major kind of hats with feathers. The center kid has a lot of red going on. Maybe another devil. Right Kid is light in color and kind of puffy or billowy. Not much detail. The script has it a little different than it happens here. Puts a camera behind the shape with an exterior shot of the Doyle house. And we can see Laurie talking on the phone. The shape's head moves slightly. And we pan to see Tommy at the front room window looking out. This, of course, doesn't happen. Instead, we're still inside the house when Tommy moves away from the window. And we pan back to see him enter the den and pull on Laurie's blouse. Laurie is twirling her hair and ad-libbing badly. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis is ad-libbing badly. Repeating lines that she's already said. Please tell me you didn't. Oh, you didn't. Tommy. Lori. Lori into phone. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Tommy. The boogeyman is outside. Lori. I couldn't even face him. She's not even paying attention. Which isn't like her. But hey, she's trying to ad-lib. Tommy. Lori. He's out there. Lori into phone. Hold on. And Tommy says, Lori. The boogeyman is outside. Look. Tommy goes to the window in the den and points. Lori walks over with the phone and looks. Lori's POV street. The street is empty. The music changes a little so that we get that creepy, eerie feeling. that We know he was just there. We know Tommy's right. And it's it's interesting, right at this moment, the light in the jack-o'-lantern in front of the Wallace house flickers a bit, almost in time to the music. 
England, Lori, and Tommy. Lori, Tommy, there's nobody outside. She tousles his hair, says, go watch TV. He looks out the window again. Lori, into phone. It's just Tommy. And then she continues with the ad-libbing. Please tell me you didn't. How could you do that? Now, in my notes about the H40 convention, I noted the thing from PJ Souls where she thought with the longer takes, they had to fill in the gaps of silence with dialogue. Jamie could have just been standing over there not saying anything as Tommy wanders away. Or there could have been more of a conversation. But either way, we get to cut away from the ad-libbing. Cut to interior Wallace House at night. Annie stands by the kitchen stove making popcorn. We watch from outside the French doors. Two plants hang nearby. Annie, into phone. Look, it's simple. You like him, he likes you. All you need is a little push. We get a POV from outside the kitchen window. The shape stands close to the camera watching Annie make popcorn. She puts the butter in the pan. It won't hurt you to go out with him, for God's sake. Annie splashes butter on herself. I corrected the script. The script says Annie starts to pour the butter over the popcorn, but instead pours it on herself. She doesn't pour it. Nancy Loomis is moving the pan just a little bit over the fire, you know, sloshing butter around as you might do. And then on cue with the line, for God's sake, she splashes that thing directly onto herself. It's really obvious. Second 48. She suddenly makes an obviously bigger move. She does a good job of timing it with raising her voice on for God's sake, though, so I guess it's okay. Annie? Shit. No, no. I just made a mess of myself. I gotta call you back. Second 54. Annie hangs up. Annie. Lindsay, I need a robe. She quickly takes off her blouse and t-shirt. We get maybe a frame or two of Lindsay on the couch, and the minute ends. That is all for Minute 43. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute, or Instagram Michael Myers Minute, or join our Facebook listeners group 45 Lampkin Lane. You can also check out a very different show of mine, Dave Made a Minute, where a bunch of Movies by Minute podcasters are tackling a film Dave Made a Maze, but some of them have only seen the minutes they're covering. Some don't even know the title of the film. You can find that under Dave Made a Minute on the obvious social media. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. And if you really like what you hear, you can help me out by donating through Patreon at patreon.com slash Minute. I finally got around to putting the tier and bonus information up. Until next time. See you later. Bye. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh?